0: if it was kershaw tipping pitches cj how does the hitter see that and take advantage well first and foremost chris if it did happen it always happens when the pitcher is in the stretch rarely can you pick up pitches when a guy is thrown from the lineup and that's what we saw in that seventh inning So we have a really cool guest this week.
1: Yeah, this is a really good guest. We're like up in the ante each
0: time we do it. <laughs> Pretty soon it's going to be like we have to get like Alex Rodriguez on for it to be interesting.
1: Yeah, Yo, you know, we never got Tim Tebow, but like we're <laughs> working our way up there.
0: Uh, anyway, so this week we recorded with former MLB player Fernando Perez. Um, he played for primarily the Tampa Bay Devil Rays in his time in the MLB, and he currently does media stuff um some writing for the new york times some poetry a little bit of video work with vice all these different things um sort of a jack of all trades right now but he was an awesome guest we recorded on site at his apartment which was yeah
1: this was weird it was it was very cool
0: (laughs) it was out of our element um but yeah so the audio quality is going to be a little bit different you could say um so we apologize for that if it really bothers you but it probably bothers me more than anyone
1: honestly i don't <laughs> apologize for it this was a cool interview regardless yeah
0: um so we talked to him for a really long time so just as a heads up um it'll be coming the interview will be coming out in two separate podcasts um the first one you're about to listen to and the second one will come out in the next couple of days so we hope that y'all enjoy it and um yeah let us know
1: yeah, no, no banter this week. We're just uh, we're just getting getting right into it with this one. <laughs> but th- this really was a, a really fun interview. So big shout out to Fernando for letting us do this, having us over at his apartment. This is yeah. amazing. Yeah, he was super super nice. He lives like 15 minutes away from us, <laughs> so
0: like <laughs> and like really accommodating. So yeah, it was great. Um, so enjoy the rest of the podcast. So Alex, we are. It's a bit of a special recording today, we are not in the studio because we are at an undisclosed location with Fernando (laughs) Perez, um, with former MLB player, current uh, writer and media personality, I guess you would call it. (laughs) Free range, freelance human. Uh, With Vice and with the MLB network. Um, Fernando, how's it going? Great. We're, uh, We're happy to be here. Um, this is an awesome opportunity, so we're just gonna get right down to it. Um, this is our this will be our first like full podcast guest. Usually, it's more of like a we. It's like half halfway through. <laughs> we like
1: bring them on, and but we like
0: we, we like bullshit with our normal selves for a while, we, and then... we bring
1: them to our element.
0: But <laughs> here we're we're out of ours. So. Yeah. So um, anyway, yeah, Alex, you wanna kick it off?
1: Yeah, sure. So I mean, can you just give a little give a little background on kind of your history with baseball. I'm curious to hear it from your perspective, but also um, not to start off with too big of a question, um, but I think that something that fans wonder about a lot is the life of a minor leaguer and just what it's like spending all that time on the road. Um, And it's a discussion that I think is coming up more and more with how the MLB treats that. and. How these players are paid. So I'm just kind of curious, from from your perspective, life as a minor league baseball player. Can you kind of sure give us a little uh, bit about that? it begins and ends with the Save America's
2: Pastime Act? If you don't know what it is, Google it. Sort of ridiculous, but uh, minor leaguers are not really protected by the union. And in fact, um, if you look back in a lot of the collective bargaining agreements, a lot of times rights of minor leaguers are um directly swapped for better rights for established players who earn lots and lots of money, and it's an ecosystem, it's very fascinating. The game is getting young, and then you have the the really um you know I, I think you could say that Andrew Friedman and the Rays are directly responsible for that hometown contract kind of thing, which has sort of uh subverted this this uh, I would say situation where teams are sort of always, I would say, incentivized to give jobs to older players with, with time. So, you know, the union, that's what the union does. Uh, obviously, the union has an incredible history and the work that they did is, is idolized the world over. But the union is now very very strong and then there are things that teams have had to do to sort of fight against that energy and you know it's just they're all entities that are pushing for um for the best for them uh i actually have had a lot of really fascinating con uh, conversations with tony clark who's the new president um super fascinating dude but the the life of a minor leaguer i mean I was, when I was drafted, I would consider myself, you know, like a middle class player. And what I mean by that, I was drafted in the seventh round. I was paid a bonus of, you know, a Googleable bonus of, you know, six figures, let's say. So, um, you know, taking an average amount of time to make it to the major leagues for a person that makes it to the major leagues was not really a problem for me. I had no children. I had no college debt for, because of a bunch of, you know, different circumstances. Uh, So I was doing fine, but, you know, you just see this, this class struggle playing out in the minor leagues where, you know, you might have a 19 year old kid that has a Ferrari um, and, you know, he's hitting 240 or whatever, sort of trying to figure it out. And then you have a 24 year old guy with two kids that, has to work in the offseason. And so I was right in the middle of that. I was very fortunate, but I was not a bonus baby. You know, often there was one team that I played on, for instance, in A-ball where I remember I was, you know, one of the higher drafted players. So I was a priority. I remember a conversation distinctly where a manager said, you know, like, you're a priority here uh, at the beginning of, of the year. And, you know, we see this play out all the time where, You know, there are stories, I don't wanna get into names, but there are stories where a first rounder curses off his coach and does some things that aren't awesome. And that guy maybe goes to the next level the next day.
0: In a way that I would imagine not the 24-year-old with two kids is doing.
2: Precisely. And so there are all sorts of situations. If you think, you know, I can think about when I played in Durham, um, I'm, I'm forgetting his name and I'm, I'm ashamed of this, but, um, you know, really the team MVP, which is always an interesting thing is a team MVP of any team at any level is never like the MVP, never the guy that's you know, getting MVP votes. It's like the guy who's the most useful. It's like your Marwin Gonzalez, even though his numbers were in- incredible and really deserved, he deserved consideration for all sorts of awards. But it's the guy who does the most for you, the guy that is that helps you in so many different situations. And so we had a guy who was not a name guy, who he pitched in mop-ups, he pitched in close games. I mean, he did everything for us. And he was you know, making the minimum. He was clearing 600 bucks every two weeks after taxes. And so he needs to do this. If his arm hurts, I mean, he can't say, yeah, my arm hurts. Like we rely on him to do this. And so there's a lot of that with teams. You see it all the time. I mean, there are, there are um, grievances settled for, for these types of things. I remember a guy on the Cubs where, you know, they, they call him up, you know, with the transaction thing, they'll call a guy up and he'll just pitch for the for you know 3 or 4 days in a row and it's horrible for him he can't say no he's got that big league adrenaline going but what's happening to his arm is probably not good but hey you know you're making the minimum and we actually don't think you're great so we're not really too worried that we're putting your elbow in a tight spot
0: so i think i think definitely i want to talk a little later about just like the physical demands of of the season even at the professional, you know, the top level. But what's really interesting, especially about what Alex's question was, is just like the mental aspect of it to me. Just the, the amount of travel that you go through for like $600 every two weeks, like you said. And how that how does that sort of limit your ability to, sh- to show interest in all of the other things that you're interested in, in life? Because like these are these are people too, as well. Like you're, you're a person who has many different interests. So for you personally, what was it like to try to go through that grind while being on non-charter flights, non-private flights, that kind of thing, and just try to, to really continue to thrive in other areas that you wanted to thrive in? Um, no, no patting myself on the back,
2: but I'm just not spoiled. And that's because of things that are mostly out of my control, my parents' other life experiences that I've had. So I think the whole time I felt very, very lucky to be doing what I was doing. I was also really young. So when you're 24 and you're on bus trips with a whole bunch of dudes and you're playing baseball and, and again, I, every year I was not expecting like a first rounder, for instance, expects that there are a certain number of years allotted to them. And I never really believed that. And I really, at the end of every year, was like, okay, I think I bought myself another year or maybe another two. So it was very, very easy for me to feel very, very lucky throughout. What I would say where things changed a little bit for me is after having an injury, the the entire game changes. It's almost as if you have um, you have a DNA change. I felt like a totally, totally different person. So whereas there was nothing that I liked doing more than just hitting in a cage, practicing and... And being out there for you know stupid outfield drills, I loved it all. In Battle Creek, Michigan, and the San Joaquin Valley, wherever I was, I really, truly enjoyed it all. But when you have an injury, um, you just see things a little bit differently. Uh, taking two hundred swings is not um, as fun, and that was really the only time that things changed. Now, when it comes to balancing things, uh, as a, if I was a GM. Um, I would be worried if I'm looking at a first rounder who's like Mike Trout, and then a first rounder who is who has like interests. I'm going with Mike Trout. <laughs> Not to say Mike Trout doesn't have interests, but I think you understand where I'm going there. Because when things get tough, and I have I know guys that are going through this, when things get tough for you in baseball. It's very easy to look at everything else in the world, this sort of civilian life that you've never really experienced and look at all that and see allure in it and feel that the grass is greener other places. And I went through that. And again, a lot of that was based on an injury. It's like, you know, holding the bat hurts. So perhaps I'd like to not hold the bat for a full month. You know, something like that. But that's, you know, focus and seeing yourself as a baseball player and as only a baseball player is the best thing that you can do. And it is really exciting. I think that the plight of getting better at a thing and just throwing yourself at it, you know, is not as isolated and sort of limited as it may seem to many people. I think that sometimes I would describe my average day to people, I have a lot of friends that are, you know, that don't really care for sports at all, and just like, wow, that's like you're watching paint dry like you're living in a still life painting or something like that, but it's actually really incredible.
1: You, um, just a little bit of background on you, right? You were drafted in 2004 by the, at the time the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Called up in 2008 and your calling card was like really your speed, right? Um, That was kind of (laughs) what you were known for. Um, But I'm curious about something that you touched on a little earlier about you being told that you were a priority, right? and you have this um organization that is full of hundreds of players essentially and i'm kind of curious from your perspective what that looks like especially as a player how teams choose to ded- dedicate more times to, to some guys over other guys mm-hmm. and and how they make those decisions i mean is it purely hierarchical that like the the first round guy gets you know x amount more than the second round and to the third and fourth i'm, I'm just kind of curious how teams kind of keep an eye and, and designate time to so many players. it can
2: be as simple as that for sure especially at the lower minor leagues and there are situations like that for instance if we all go out drinking and do a dumb thing and you are a first rounder and I'm a 32nd rounder I may be going home And, you know, so that's like, that's, you know, a situation that I, a hypothetical that I use all the time. So the the money, it really is like a class system and it can feel that way a lot. Now, some managers, so this is, this is coming from the top. Now, some of the people that are actually your handlers throughout this, some of them respect that more than others. There is a fear, you know, we'll get into player development and some of those things, you know, a little bit later, but there is certainly a fear, well-documented, not spoken about much, where the people that are actually handling people, the coaches, they sort of want to keep their head to the ground and not make too many waves. So if you're a first rounder and I really mess with your swing and you don't have such great results and I'm, you know, maybe I'm an assistant GM and I'm having a conversation with you in passing and you sort of mentioned that a hitting coach like kind of got you off on the right path, on the wrong path, that could be the end of a job for that person. So that sort of thing happens all the time. Now, After a year or two, we obviously see that teams cut deals and managed to acquire players for nothing. Up until around the time I got into baseball, um, Major League Baseball and franchises, they operated horribly in Latin America. I mean, there are guys that I played with that, you know, you meet a guy who's 6'5 and throws 97 and he signed for $12,000. And then you meet a guy who is, you know, went to a good four-year school protected in a great sec lineup puts up some pretty good numbers looks the part hey here's a million dollars you're a first rounder now so after a couple years that 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 investment still is a is a thing if you give a guy a million dollars it's not that he becomes you know his 220 batting average in a year after a while it's definitely true um but you know there are some guys that you know, they give him a look at Jose Altuve. I don't think that he got an incredible amount. But I think after a point, you realize, wow, there's something incredible we have on our hands here. We have to treat this guy like, you know, sort of like a first rounder. But a lot of that, you know, definitely the way that we operate in Latin America is a lot better today than it was before. I got a chance to work at the um, international showcase of, of prospects, basically the best 50 prospects uh, that are amateurs they come and we have a workout for them where all the teams can look at them. And before, there was all this wheeling and dealing before. If we are all scouts and we go to the Dominican Republic, you know, flying the the California Angels flag, we are going to be rewarded for getting more on our dollar. So we will do anything to get more on our dollar. In the past, what that involved is, you know, with, with Buscones being sort of this... It's like it's sort of like an, I can think about it like, um, you know, governments uh, using different intelligence people and things like that sort of in the past, you know, um, the government goes in and, you know, they employ some foreign mercenaries to do some things. It's a lot of the same the same ideas. And, you know, Buscones were doing things like, hey, make sure like don't leave your house for a while. Uh, I really don't want you to practice and have other teams see you because that's going to drive the price up. There are so many things going on. The stories that I know alone are awful, and, and they you know are mostly in the two thousands. So if you go further back, I mean, some of the things are, are horrible, and there are things that happened to me that should just give you a bit of an idea. One of them, I, I forget where it's like it's like all of the the writing that I've done. A lot of it just like bleeds into one story, but you know, I had a a guy from from a team tell me not to go, like he made up a workout so that I wouldn't go work out for another team. He made it up. It didn't exist. And he admitted that it didn't exist. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on. And so, you know, just like everything, uh, the world is getting, is becoming in many respects a better place because there are, you know, cell phone cameras everywhere and there's more people interested in the plight of more people. So this, you know, the plight of the, the athlete is, is better than it ever
0: has been. And, you know, I expect it to get better. When you're in the moment, like when that guy makes up a fake workout or like when the manager is very obviously prioritizing the different class levels of the miners like how much of that do you realize in the moment and how much of that informs the way players interact or the way that you interacted with other players
2: it's known it's it's definitely known players dynamics build because of it um and again it's like we there's not any reason that we should shy away from like the obvious racial issue and the racial implications of you know, having guys that are essentially signed for less money on the dollar than other guys, and so therefore their priorities. So, you know, there are probably even still today situations where you have a Latin player that was signed out of an academy in Venezuela who is just absolutely better than a guy that played at college. The college guy gets more money. Here they are in a situation where one guy is getting a few at-bats a week. You know how that works in baseball. Those at-bats might not go well. You might be hitting 125 when really, if you are getting all of those at-bats, you might be hitting better than the 240 this guy is getting to uh, hitting, you know, in, in all the at-bats that he's getting. So it can be very, very difficult to sort of wait your, your turn, but as I mentioned, with the, the sort of the things, uh, I would say the, the dynamic of having a family, for instance, and having your clock be a little bit different and your patience being a little bit different, uh, you could imagine that it just, it gets hard for people. So if you're in your, you're 28 and you're in AAA and you're just watching a team run out all of these younger guys that are not very good, that can be very, very difficult for you. Uh, the late bloomer is a thing in baseball. There are guys that just don't get good until very late. And we're really, there's so much guesswork when it comes to player development that that can be very, very frustrating. So a lot of times, you know, you could have a guy that's like on the verge, maybe at 28, 29. And an organization is looking at him like, ah, you know, if you haven't figured it out yet, you're not going to figure it out. We're not going to give you these at bats. We're going to give it to this 21 year old. Um, So that, all of these dynamics are often present and it just depends on the personalities. There, there could be, you could be getting screwed and you can be impatient and you could be screwing yourself by showing your impatience. You can look like a bad teammate for that. Um, you can also do the opposite and end up getting an opportunity because of that. And when it comes to, to baseball, it's all about hanging around and just being there when somebody gets injured i mean i think everybody has gotten i know myself i've gotten an opportunity directly because uh of an injury uh, and just like being patient but a lot of a lot of the time it's like i was in a position to be patient because you know again not much debt you know uh no kids etc cetera, et cetera. you know if if things took a, l- a while longer i think i would have been fine with it but other guys it's not really the case
0: how did you become so interested in player development? I know it's something that you talk about a lot and you talked about it at Saber seminar and just the ways that you feel there are obvious misses from teams and their their practices and their strategies, or I guess more specifically, like, what about the player development in your career that you were schooled in um, was, like, lackluster enough that you feel it can be better?
2: Wrongheaded or not, I believe that we are deferring, passing the buck, ignoring teaching the actual game. Now, there are reasons for this. It's hard to teach the game. The game, um, there's a lot of, it's It's intuitive. There are some things that are intuitive. It's, It's. there are things that can't really be taught until you actually like get in there and do them. And so that's very, very true. But the way that I see things, there you have teams that are putting all of these resources into parsing players on other teams and not Teaching their own players. Now, I share these ideas with, with people. Most of the time, they agree. Every once in a while, someone will feel like, oh, no, no, we're teaching. I mean, our coaches are at the forefront of all these teaching things. Well, you know, something I, I mentioned before is that there's often disincentive for a coach to really put hands on a player. Now, also, even a, a coach that is putting hands on a player, so to speak, with, with teaching them, are they teaching them the right thing? So there's right there, I've given you a, a tons of reasons for why a lot of coaching doesn't really take place. We haven't done too much progressive, I would say, we haven't, we haven't done too much to kind of tackle that. We've sort of subverted it. And I think one of the reasons that we've done that is because there's just this surplus of young players always coming. So in a sense, you don't really have to teach these guys. All you have to do is just invite them to a proving ground. That's really what it feels like to to be signed is is you're invited to a proving ground. You sink or swim. If you swim, you know, you have the job. You keep the job. But we're seeing players that are not Giancarlo Stanton bodies and Aaron Judge bodies. We're seeing them get really good at baseball really fast. Why is Jose Altuve good? This is totally related to this why is he good does anybody (laughs) really know he hits everything he hits everything so his hand eye is probably insane like top one percent yeah probably top one percent we don't have we don't have a like a you know like a scale for that so for instance that's just like a thing that i would say for a team i'm like i think we should develop a hand eye scale as opposed to some sort
0: He's got bat to ball skills,
2: bat to ball skills. Right. But that's so it's the same sort of thing. It's like a less articulate version of that. But there are some guys that it'll be like an Aaron judge body, but they don't have depth perception and they will never hit a slider and nothing that you can do. No LASIK or whatever will make them hit this slider or, or whatever. So there's a lot of there's a lot of mud there, but I just think that we're afraid of getting in it because it's too frustrating, it's too experimental, and that's all that I'm interested in. So to work for a team and basically be another person in a system thinking, essentially overthinking baseball decisions is not super interesting to me, but finding ways of teaching players how to get better at baseball is absolutely very interesting to me. It's a project. If, if you look at what's happening, you know, obviously there, there have been a lot of you know, leaps and bounds, things are getting better. We were at a point where it was like somebody suggested a shift and somebody was like, no, that's like too weird. We shouldn't do that. And now we're off obviously at a point where we're trying different things. And now more people are listening. When I was saying things like this eight or 10 years ago, it was more just like, oh, whatever, dude. And now team. Now people are actually like, I think you've got something going here. That to me is very interesting. The The baseball decisions what we've what teams have done is they've thrown more of the same type of thing it's like we need some baseball solutions what what should we do we should hire more like energetic type a thinkers is what we should do and that's essentially what we're doing it's like a lot of people sort of thinking in the same ways now there are there are teams that are doing smart things they're trying there are teams that are trying the weighted ball program That's just interesting that that it's a thing that they're trying, and they're ruining guys as well. There are some guys, like I know there's a team I'm thinking of that did a weighted ball program. Now, um, you know, I don't know the exact numbers, but if there are 10 guys that went through it, a few of them ruined their arms. A few of them got some velo. I applaud it because it's a team thinking of like, how can we make our players better? There's a team thinking. But obviously, whatever you do when you're putting hands on players – there is actually a labor issue even though i don't know the specifics i'm just sort of talking ideas because i don't know the specifics like does the imagine if you're a pitcher for one of these teams they put you through a weighted ball program you hurt your elbow do you have a grievance i think yes (laughs) i I think you do i think you do (laughs) so so but only because it's unorthodox right
0: like they put people through programs all the time that hurt their arms trying to add velo everyone hurts their arms now sure but, but I would say
2: perhaps the weighted ball is, um, it's like over the line. Like if I work with, if I tweak your your delivery, that's like, I mean, people tweak deliveries. You're not getting outs with that arm slot in this delivery. We're trying something. You know, who knows? Maybe you have a grievance there. But if we, if, if let's say the, the thing that I've, I'm sort of alluding to a program that I've pitched to um, certain teams where I want to change practice. Why do we practice the way that we practice? Why do we practice at the times that we practice? Well, a lot of them is, especially as an outfielder, you know, you know, coaches will say, this is eyewash. As they say, we're just like, we're doing this just so that if anybody's watching, they're just like, ah, yes, my, my, my players are practicing. So fungo fly balls. Yeah. Fungo fly balls. So it's just very funny as an outfielder where you're like the infielders who are the more talented players, for sure. They have actual things to do. <laughs> You know the infielders are working on baseball and they're just like, "Well, we don't have anything to do." So sometimes they're just like, "Let's just go hit." And and we're like, "Yeah, that's awesome." So we'll just go hit. But other times it's just like, "Okay, I'm just going to hit you some soft fungos that you'd never see in a game." <laughs> Great. <laughs> 10 let's, seconds to react. Yeah, let's 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 work for half an hour on um, you know, on ground balls with no pressure and no runner. Let's work on that. So you know, part of my interest is, is essentially learning design, changing the way that we practice. And this program that I've de- that I've you know developed and, and shopped, I actually have like a, a thing that I've circulated a little bit. Um, I've talked to. Um, I can just say I talked to the Blue Jays the most about it. They're the most interested in it, but um, it's based off of an experimental program that I did in high school. I went to. I was very lucky. I went to a very very fancy high school. And within this high school, there is an experimental education program with the aim of trying things on students. And then if they worked, implementing them on the greater student body. So my ask for a team is, um, you know how you draft a bunch of players that you don't think are good, you just draft them because you need to round out the rest of your team because it's not basketball and it's not tennis. Like you need players to play the games. You just need guys. I mean, uh, and and I and some of these guys have the greatest attitudes. A lot of them are catchers. They know all they're, all they're doing is they're just traveling around on the phantom DL as we call it. Um, you know, like oh go go to AAA. You're going to go to AAA, and there's like they're not even on the roster. They're catching bullpens, hanging out. You know, now I'm going to A-ball. I'm the backup catcher in A-ball. Maybe somebody gets injured. I got to play for two weeks. Oh, my God, thrill of my life. You're released. That's, like the, that's the life. And those guys are so interesting. You know, it's, there's, I can only remark on seeing those, those things. I can't remark on being that guy. I've never, I've never been that guy. But um, my charge to a team is give me those guys. Give me those guys you don't think are good. Now, there may be things about these guys that they cannot be good. You know, perhaps if you're 5'3", you cannot play in the major leagues. Perhaps you just, you just don't have the levers, you know. But perhaps if, if, if I'm right that we're not really teaching the game or we're not doing too many things to, to sort of shake up guys' you know, body chemistry. So, for instance, if you have a really shitty swing... What sometimes, you know, a, a manager or say a hitting coach will say is like, he's, he's got a bad swing. I can't really work with that. I can't make his body work differently. Well, why can't you make his body work differently? Everybody else can do it. Why? So sort of a, a very baseball-y thing is just like, oh, well, let's go hit 400 balls. You know, well, actually, let's not do that. How about you don't touch a baseball or a baseball bat for a full week. You're going to swim every day. We're going to do all of these like, you know, cutting edge biomechanical movements. We're going to try to change the way that your body moves. We're going to try to explain the physics of hitting to you in a very, very different way with videos and all sorts of other things. And we're going to see if we can actually get anything out of you. I would imagine that there are some players that you won't make them any better. But I would imagine a lot of players, you would make them a lot better. Because um, a lot of this is based on meeting players who... They're 29 and they're 30 and they're learning all of the stuff late. And by the time that's happening, a lot of them are in, in the independent ball. And that's the late bloomer thing. A great player, Steve Finley. He told me I worked with him um, in, a, in a camp in, um, in Italy, a uh, major league camp in Italy. And he said, I didn't learn anything until I was about 28 because until that point, I was just the best athlete on the field. So I knew the rules of baseball and I knew the object of the game. I'm paraphrasing essentially, but I would just go out and play baseball and I played it better than the other players. But at about 28 or 29 my physical skills, like they sort of like plateaued. So now I had to learn. And then I realized Tony Gwynn was on my team. Perhaps I could learn from him. And so, <laughs> and then he, you know, that's that's the the real thing. You see a bunch of players that they're, they're very, very good when they're 26 and they're still receiving, you know, all of the, the you know, the, the natural, um, you know, chemicals in their body and stuff. And then things plateau. And then some of these guys like, become great because they're actually learning and they're, um, and they're getting better. Like, you know, they say 28 I had heard this before that 28 is sort of the magic age for a baseball player because you're, you know, your, your physical skills haven't started to decline and then you should be, you should have learned things. But really what happens is that a lot of guys peter out at that point because they haven't learned anything. They've been getting by in all these leagues because they're just, they're just better athletes than people. Then, you know, the learning The learning comes and they just, they they lose it.
1: Do you have a sense of like what that looks like in baseball today? What that breakdown looks like in terms of which guys really like know, like understand how to play the game versus um, the guys who are just good at the game? You know what I mean? Like the guys who are just kind of getting by on those physical skills or does it, do you really start to kind of see that separation around like, you know, 30? It's hard to answer, you
2: know, talking about Jose Altuve's and things like that, a lot of it is, is so, it's personality. So here's, a, here's an idea. If I think about some of the first teams that I ever played on, I've always been interested in people. As a writer, always been interested in people and the way that they operate and the things that they sort of bring, the, bring to the table, the way they see the world. I was never a person who like walked into a room and was like, I'm the fucking best. But that guy is usually really good at baseball. <laughs> okay that guy's usually really really good because that guy never has the deer in the headlights thing now we see the deer in the headlights thing all the time last notable time we saw it was you darvish you darvish is is if you uh created a pitcher in a lab he is the the pitcher perhaps and we saw him on on the mound now i might be filling it in a little bit but what it looked like to a lot of people was that the moment was too big he was like oh i'm 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 not he forgot he was you darvish or something like that so from a personality standpoint you want more of those kinds of guys that they're like they're not scared of anybody um they're no, there's no like there's not a shred of self sabotage or anything in there um, i know if you just look at how I opened every season. You know, Northeastern guys take a little while because we don't play baseball all year round. You know, I remember going to my first spring training and thinking like, oh my God, everybody is so good. Now, other that never happened to other guys. Other guys are just like, fuck these guys. I'm so much better than all these guys. <laughs> so that never happened. It actually took me a couple of years to realize that everybody was saying that about me. But I wasn't very good at the beginning. I played to the level of a competition and then I sort of would figure it out toward the end of the season. And, and then, you know, hopefully not regress too much, but that's a personality thing. And so if you look at the personalities that you have, there are certain there, they're um, you know, as we have, the, they say winning attitudes and losing attitudes, winning players, losing players it was Eric Hinsky that said that to me first. And I didn't really get what he meant. This is when I played with him in Tampa and then I got it. Um, a losing player is like when things are going bad, they're, they're like, they're kind of like pissy in the dugout. They're kind of like making everything kind of shitty. So if you're if you're if your leadoff hitter is a losing player, after he he strikes out, you know, in the first at bat, he's not sharing information with the rest of the team. He's so self-absorbed in his strikeout that he's like he's not playing a team sport. A winning player strikes out and it's just like, oh, I know what I'm, I'm going to get them next time, you know, and and part of that, you know, some of these things are, you know, if we look if we look at some of these videos, if you ever seen any of these videos on YouTube about like whether Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant is a psychopath, like a lot of, <laughs> a, lot of oh, are, <laughs> a lot of these things are literally like you You want to scout for psychopathic behaviors and personalities, you know, they're, you know, not, not patently, but perhaps patently, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> But yeah, but that's, that's part of it. So there are a lot of different personalities that make different kinds of players. Um, do, I I think that you can also be a relatively, um, like relatively unattached and then draw some leverage from that. Like if you just don't think anything's a big deal, then maybe you can pitch the ninth inning of the world series and not think that that's a big deal as well. Um, you know, that's, that's part of it, but um, I just see personalities really at play since when you 're looking at players, not much tends to separate them uh physically, you know like um uh what 's the guy the third baseman of the dodgers um justin Turner, Turner. Justin Turner that played hurts, with him man. played with stand. him quite a bit and that's a guy he is he is so locked in and his at bats are so quality and he knows his swing. I want you right now to think when the last time you saw Justin Turner overswing was.
0: Maybe maybe once in the playoffs this year after he hit a home run.
2: Yeah. So now there are great players that you know so let's so let's quantify this. Let's let's make overswinging a stat and like league average if you have a 1,000 swings or 10,000 swings and league average is 700, Justin Turner's under that. There are great players that are double that. If you can get them to stop that, that's more contact, that's more hits, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's a guy that is, you know, we like to use this idea that this is a, somebody playing at their ceiling. I think it's more like knowing, knowing who you are. So it's interesting. If you see a guy, I remember watching... Um, Carlos Gonzalez, one of my favorite players ever I played against him a lot in the minor leagues. You know, I remember watching him play when he was young, just beautiful swing. He just looked, he just looks like an artist up there. And there's, you know, that's another thing to scout for guys that just like make it look very, very easy. And if you could imagine, if you have incredible bat speed, you will not be hurt as much for over swinging in any given at bat. So when you're up in the count. You can just take the most hellacious, insane hack ever, especially if you're in the lower minor leagues, and people will be like, "Ooh, he was right on that." Actually, he was never really right right on that at all. all. I think that's all. He too was gonna miss that the whole time because, really, what he was doing that was an act of aggression. He was just like having fun in the beginning of the at bat. <laughs> now, if you're not as talented and you know you can't do that, or you have you have more uh, you, the the idea that you must have a nice like eighty five to ninety percent swing. Because that's what gets you hits. If that's more, has like more become a part of like your heart and your being and your consciousness, you're going to be a better player. Um, so that's a, a lot about Have a, you, a random thing.
0: <laughs> have you seen guys when like that, that idea of like, I think I'm fucking great, like fuck all these other guys versus, oh my God, these guys are really good. When those things don't line up, like the fuck <laughs> all these other guys kind of guy is actually not that good and is like hitting maybe like 210 in the minors and yeah have you seen that like backfire and explode and that's like have the, you seen players melt down from that
2: is that that's the that's the uncle and the napoleon dynamite probably. <laughs> um watch me
0: throw a football over this mountain <laughs> yeah, we would have won state if
2: you know well we we know many of many of these people. Uh, they become like you know champion commenters on you know baseball content. Uh, <laughs> you know, like they just literally live in their life. Uh, you know, thinking. Really, truly thinking that if it wasn't for this coach that hated them, that they probably would have like not only played at UCLA, but like probably played a couple of years in the big leagues. There are people that have that are that have these delusions of grandeur. They're everywhere. And many of them are sports fans. And yes, the people that are the, the quickest to say that, like, Chase Headley sucks. Chase Headley doesn't suck. He's just not as good as the other players that play baseball. So yeah, that, that that does backfire a little bit. You can see it probably with the with high school guys that are told that they're great, 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 great. They never go back to the bottom of the of the barrel as a freshman. So they're great, 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 great. They're in double A. They're not great. They're wondering what the hell is going on. It's the coaches. It's this. It's that. Like it's it all. It's also bad scouting, you know, as well. There's so many. There's so many different things, you know. It's there's no. There's really when it comes to all this stuff. There's no absolutism, and I think people know that in, in player development. We all know that. Um, I just think that for that reason, I I just find the um the like let's huddle down and overthink this to just be ridiculous. And from a money standpoint, if I owned a team. You know, why am I going to pay people millions of dollars to make these decisions that they can't really make? You can have a guy have a great draft, sure, but you can also have a guy that does the draft very, very well, and none of these players pan out. So why pay somebody $26 million, and which is becoming like a year, I mean, so uh, what? Cashman got $25 million, whatever. Are you going to tell me we could probably prove this in in like a couple days or a couple hours that a random number generator might do a better job at drafting over a decade (laughs) than somebody you paid millions and millions of dollars? I'm not saying that GMs are not smart. Many GMs are very, very smart and many of them have done very, very smart things. But there's this back padding culture that I think we're we're just giving people a lot more credit than I think is deserved. And just because you spend hours and hours and hours overthinking things, flying the flag of the whatever team, like it doesn't mean that you're good. It just means that there's a, there's a market to pay you a lot of money to do this sort of thing. I, to me, if I was a, if I was a owner of a team, I would use a random number generator for a lot of things. <laughs> and then what I would do is, you know, obviously there are people that have great intuition. Um and this is a thing that, you know, there's a spectrum for it. We've seen GMs that have horrible intuition. They make bad and passion decisions. And then there are people that that, you know, they do the right things. It's like, "Oh, we should really like, oh, that guy Johan Santana, I think we should take him in the rule 5 draft. I think that might be a good idea." So, what I would do is I would have I would have all of my smart baseball minds that like want to be GMs, they'd form a committee and all of the decisions and their feelings would be logged. And like the guy who was the, the most right that year would get a bonus or something like that. <laughs> but I just find like the the, the way that we're thinking about this, it's like I, we were talking about this the other day and I, and I felt, um, I don't want to say who I was talking about this with because it's like a, a, a famous baseball person. But we were talking about GMs and and all this. And I was like, well, who's good? Who's a good GM? And mind you, I already, I'm going to restate it just in case this is going on on the internet. I'm going to (laughs) restate. If you're a bad GM, you're not a bad person. You're not a dumb person. You could be a brilliant person, but we're talking about looking into the future and you can't do this. How close are you getting to Matt Allison to know Jeff Allison to know that that was going to happen. Like you, like maybe, like, should we have spies that like are finding out more about players? I don't know. Should you have, you know, think about going to watch a guy. This happens all the time. You go to watch a guy and he's on all the drugs. He's on, he's on a little bit of HGH. He's got some steroid gummies, he's got everything and he's throwing 97 with a hammer. And it's just like, you know, maybe you should have known that. There are ways (laughs) to know those things. So there's, there's so much to wade through when it comes when it comes to scouting, we're just like, so who's good? Who's good? Who has done a good job? And so some names start to get thrown around. So let's talk about Jerry Depoto for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Jerry yes. Depoto. <laughs> speaking of speaking of my lab metaphor that I overuse for everything, <laughs> Jerry Depoto is the is the GM that you would build in a lab. Yeah, he has playing experience. He's handsome. He's white. That's pretty much it right there. he's yeah. <laughs> yeah well look at look at managers have we like, like look at look at a lifetime of managers that's a big thing they're that all they're all they all look like senators remember this is an important <laughs> thing this is, this is an important thing you're you're an ambassador it's like they have to see you they have to see your face a lot you you, you think we're hiring i know i don't want to get in the mud too much with this idea but like you know do, are, are we hiring like like ugly managers like no we're hiring, like, guys that, like, they look the part. They can talk pretty well. Like, people like them. That's the guy that we pick. But a Jerry DePoto guy. So so if we look at his decisions, has he been a good GM or a bad GM? He has a podcast. He can talk. He can, he can validate things. He's made a lot of bad decisions. He's gotten jobs. He's still around there. Now, I'll just say it. Could Kim Eng make those moves and still have a job? I don't think so. Could Omar Minaya make those moves and still have a job? I don't really think so. I could be wrong. I'm just saying. So Jerry Depoto, he's a perf—he's a perfect, perfect example for me because I think I think that he's a smart baseball person, et cetera, et cetera. But we're just putting—to me, I think—we're just putting too much weight on the on the job. It's like, what can you really do? Like, you can change culture, you can make some good trades, but you can also make a lot of bad ones. So. When you're when you're doing a thing, it's like when you're playing poker like that, it's just like how good can you be really? How good can one be at poker? You know, who's another guy? Like AJ Preller just got an extension. Now, people <laughs> so people, you know, people have been saying that this guy's a bad GM. So what is what what is it that he has? So, you know, I've never had a conversation with the guy. Like perhaps like this is a guy that you you talk to him. And you're just like, oh, you should take all my money. You know, there are people that you, that like, until you see them like getting, you know, uh, getting opportunities and this, this, and that. And then, and then um, you know, until you actually talk to them, you're just like, oh, wow, this is this incredible charm or, there's, or this thing, they see the game in this way or, or that it's a, it's a process that is, that is going to be trusted uh, and whatever. But, you know, who knows if, if they will trust your process. I met Sam Hinke and it was really funny. He's brilliant. <laughs> He's brilliant. He's really, really brilliant guy. They didn't trust this process. We're living, we're sort of living in his in his process now. But that's like a, a question I pose to people like what so who's a good GM and why? Who's a good GM and why? If you show up to a team, you know, uh you show up to a team that is bad, and your team has uh just oodles of first round picks that are all of a sudden just ready to play in the major leagues, and you're the GM at that time, you're a great GM. Uh are you a great GM? I'm not entirely sure. Like uh, Brian Sabian, I don't know how he did that. Maybe he's great. I don't know. But you know, a random number number generator is going to like if if it's dice, like you're gonna roll you're gonna roll fives ten times in a row here and there. You know, like I don't I don't really know. I um I, I don't pay too too much attention to it to like really like get in here and say like this guy is the best GM because of this or like or even to say that this person's track record like you look at all these these decisions that they made these were all net positive decisions that guy's a good GM there's probably some luck involved there too but I just think that there's this like weird kind of culture that that we have this like back padding kind of thing where like oh he's great Oh, he's brilliant. And a lot of it I know is just industry stuff because people want to work for everybody and they just don't want to, you know, they just don't like want to say it. But um, I I find it very,
0: very difficult to kind of to give these awards out. I was just going to say, we've talked about like with managers, that's that specific idea. If a random number generator, like you said, can like potentially do as well or better as a GM or a manager or whatever it might be. Why are things like he speaks Spanish, not a higher... Value not a bar that literally every manager has to clear. Like if half of every clubhouse speaks Spanish, how is that not the first question that they ask in an interview? But anyway, Alex, what, I didn't want to cut you off.
1: No, I was going to say. I mean, by the same token, you mentioned like why do you guys not to um, dwell too much on Jerry Depoto? is like our, our singular <laughs> example. I don't but, know Jerry Depoto. <laughs> of course, I don't and know. I'm sure Jerry he's DePoto. a he's a wonderful man. I'm sure um, he's wonderful. <laughs> but but I think of uh, like Dave Stewart with the Diamondbacks, and he made. One big trade is the GM, which was he traded um, Dansby Dansby Swanson to the Braves and was ridiculed for, for it. He and, ridiculed himself. Yes. <laughs> he said it. He, he gave into it. Yeah. He said. He's just like, oh, if there's one
2: mistake I made in my life, <laughs> it was training Dansby Swanson, the king of baseball. Yeah. And he didn't play so well. this. He didn't play so well. I don't know. Does Dansby Swanson, like... He's come, really like, handsome. Br- He's like, super come back? handsome. Yeah. <laughs> like, does he come back and become a great player? Or yeah. was he just like a guy that he was... Uh, like overrated I I don't I don't really know but that the Dave Stewart thing is is hilarious because when he when he came out and said it and then I was like watching the year that this guy was having I was just like I don't know if you really like necessarily meant that Dave but anyway continue continue. oh I
1: was gonna I mean it's funny but it also is like you know he may never get a job as a GM again right and you ask why someone like him won't um, versus any other of the GMs right now Mm -hmm. That was really cool we got really deep in the weeds there with him
0: (laughs) yeah so uh this first half of the or the first half of this interview was you know a little more analytical um and just talking about like his interest in scouting and stuff as as you just heard um but the second half which is coming in a couple days uh it'll be a little more laid back a little more casual and he tells a lot of stories um and we just kind of shoot the shit a little bit more plus we asked him a lot about you asked him about like his off the field interest his writing and stuff so we're just about to get into that so check back in a couple days
1: yeah we i think we uh started to get into our rhythm a little bit more in the second half of this interview uh a little more back and forth a little, <laughs> a little more jokes here and there and, uh, uh, he's and definitely
0: he's definitely like a, a character and so i think that comes out a little bit more in the next ep- the next half of this i don't even know how to like phrase it but in the next half of the interview which will be the second podcast with fernando so check back in a couple days yeah we'll see you guys soon